0: Stand. I mean, come on! You've had all ten seconds. If you have your Bibles open? Them to Second Peter, chapter one, verse sixteen. Second Peter, chapter one, verse sixteen. We pick up in Second Timothy for chapter one, right where we left off last week. Peter writing probably to churches scattered around present-day Asia, including Bithynia. They, had the great capital of the nation. We pray and thank God for his word this morning and the implications of it for all of our life. And as we pray for God's blessings on our ability to hear and understand and to act on this, I also call us to pray for some beloved people in our church. David Schumann is a man that many of you do not know, but he was very much a part of our life and our fellowship. For years, would come for three, four, sometimes five months. would sit right over here. Uh, hasn't been with us for a long time now. They went to be with the Lord last night, yesterday. And um, we're just thankful for his blessings to our church, the way he continued to be a vital part of our work and made so many things possible. And for he and Martha, and for Martha and his family, we just lift them in prayer, thankful for the servant who's gone home. And then Clarice Padilla is, She and Peter have been a very important part of our church. Clarice is still in the hospital with COVID-19, been very, very ill, has not turned that corner, and we just lift our dear sister to the Lord this morning. We'd like to see her revived and strengthened and strong again. There are many other needs. All of these things remind us that our time is short, that the days are few. Let's make them count. Father, thank you for this, your word today. Thank you for these two that I've just named who've served faithfully and loved your kingdom and given um, and shown us the sacrifice of Christ in many ways. We pray for comfort for Dave's family. We thank you that just as they said, he he has fought the good fight. He has finished his faith and there is before him a crown of glory. And we rejoice in that and pray for comfort, particularly for Martha and the rest of the family. And we lift our dear sister Clarice, we're so thankful for she and Peter, and we particularly lift them this morning as she is in a critical time of struggle. We pray for healing and for health and renewal, and that you'll give her many days of kingdom service. And as we come to this, your word this morning, we are reminded that our days are few, that the days are urgent, and we need to be anchored in your truth. Everything needs to be prioritized around it. And that certainly any who are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we would pray that even today, maybe even through this message, they might be drawn to him. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. We're right in the middle of Peter's words to believers. And um, maybe the question we should start with is why bother to listen to the sermon today? Um, why should Peter's uh, hearers and readers? Pay attention to what he was saying. You remember verses 12 through 15, just previous to this, what we looked at last week, he had said that the message he was bringing them was an urgent message and that they need to be reminded about everything that he was saying. They need to be stirred up in it, that, that there was a tendency to forget, there was a tendency to lose focus. And even though he had nothing new to say to them, everything he was saying to them they had already been established in, it's easy to move off that foundation. Or it's easy to lose sight of the foundation you just live in. And so he was urging them and telling them that his effort was to, to keep this fresh and at the forefront, to wake them up, to keep them from laziness and slothfulness and drowsiness in the things that really matter, and to be reminded because he was soon going home to be with the Lord. It was his last will and testament. His death was coming soon. But he wanted to make sure that he these these that he was writing to and all the way down to us and all Christians till Jesus comes back would know these truths. They were that important. Now, what is it that makes him so important? Why can he speak with such certainty that you've really got to stay anchored and focused on this truth that he's getting across? And he will answer that in, in two or three different ways. We're going to look at just the first way this morning but it's one certainly relevant to us. So this morning I ask you to listen to my message because I'm trying to be true to Peter's message, and we start with noting what Peter's message, and I hope my sermon, is not. What the gospel message is not. You notice the first words he says, verse one, sixteen, chapter 1, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Um, My dear friends, I don't think I have to tell any of you here that are very astute at all about what's going on in the culture around us, that it would constantly try to convince you that if you are among those, and many of you are because you're here this morning, that take seriously the teachings of Jesus Christ and His Word, the Bible, you are, to put it not so politely, you know, you're probably an ignorant, moronic buffoon. You are part of a people who obviously are rather uninformed, poorly educated, probably not very aware of where reality is these days. Oh, the Bible's a fine book. It has some of good moral lessons here or there. But in fact, it's becoming discerned by a lot of people that in fact, the morality of the Bible is indefensible. It's outrageous. And what's not outrageous? Well, it's just impossible. It's ridiculous to try to live that way, to try to live that out. I mean, we understand in this culture that there's okay. Some people need this faith stuff, and that's, that's perfectly fine as long as they don't push too hard and... We can tolerate them. We can smile and shake our heads with incredulity and and move on. But as far as the Bible being a reliable guide for for understanding how you should cope and live and and manage your life here and now, or or being thinking that you're on the right side of history going forward, or to to even look at the Bible as some reliable guide to things that happened long ago in the past, well, no, 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 no. The Bible is, after all, just another one of many great religious books in the world, but this one's probably more troublesome, more dogmatic, probably more toxic. You be careful with this one. Most of the others give room for other ideas and not this Bible thing. It is, after all, just made up of a mishmash of ancient nonsense. That is the culture you live in, and that is the message that's being promoted to you in a thousand different ways all the time. I'm going to invite the children, the boys and girls here, to come join me on the platform, all our boys and girls. Come on up here. Particularly boys and girls that like stories. Just have a seat right here. Terry, would you hand me that microphone right there? You might need it. Have a seat. you all like stories? Let me put a picture up on the screen. Do you know this story? That reminds you of a story anybody knows? What story does that remind you of? Anybody know it? The tortoise and the hare. Come up here, please. Do you know that story? Come up here. Come on. Without any preparation, any practice, I want a short version of the tortoise and the hare. Speak to the whole crowd. Just just tell us the story. Put that microphone right up there. Tell us the story of how this goes. Once upon a time, there was a tortoise and a hare. And the hare was slow, and, or the hare was fast and the tortoise was slow, so the hare wanted to have a race with the tortoise, and they had a race, and the, the hare was winning, and then the hare went in to take a nap, and the tortoise was already at the end of the race by the time the hare got there. Very good. Perfect job. If you don't know that story, it's one that I'm sure you'll hear, and it makes a good point, doesn't it? It's not just the fastest that always wins. It's the person who steadily keeps at it, keeps at it. That's a good story to tell. Now, this is my question. Was there some time in the past where there really was a rabbit, that's what a hare is, and a, a tortoise, a turtle, where they got together and said, let's race? Did that really happen? And they had them a, had a marked out a race and there was a finish line. And, and one version I heard, the fox was the guy who said, go. Did that, did that really happen back in the woods someplace? No that's just a made-up story, isn't it? And there are a lot of good made-up stories that are fun to hear. They have good points. But I want to remind you this morning that there are other stories, important stories, the most important stories, the ones we find in the Bible, they are not made up. When we tell those stories, we're telling things that we believe actually happened and where God actually spoke. And God did things, and God's people, sometimes they did the right things, often they did the wrong things, but God kept working in their life. And that kind of story is very different than a lot of these, like that story or stories about a lot of things that you hear all the time. You, I hope you understand, as you get older you'll understand, between make-believe and real stories, real history that matter. Stories are very important. And the stories you hear, and a lot of them that you might hear now, aren't such good stories as even this one. They'll try to make you think and think about life in a way that's wrong. But God's story is not only right, but it's true. It really happened. And that's why you, above all else, ought to center your life not on stories about tortoises and hares or Star Wars or some princesses that get real cold or any of that stuff. You ought to focus on the stories that are true because they are the ones that will help you in your life, okay? Okay. Thank you, boys and girls. You can return to your seats. The world of our day and the world of the first century... The world that Peter lived in was full of all kinds of nice sounding stories, and some of them made some good points. The world of ancient Greece and Rome had all their fabled accounts about life, including many stories that people took seriously in the sense that they they formed associations and commitments to all kinds of gods and goddesses and all the stories that were behind them. Now, we don't know about everyone and how they actually thought of that. There were people who probably bought into those stories as having some deal de- some connection with some reality. But probably, we think, in the first century, even those devotees of various gods and otherwise, those Greek and Roman mythologies, people knew, no, that didn't really happen. You couldn't, you couldn't get to Mount Olympus someplace. You couldn't find it on a map. Um, Hercules uh, is a nice story, uh, but he wasn't really some illegitimate son of Zeus with godlike powers. Those were myths, but they, they had their helpful, helpful place. Bible is not that kind of story. In the 19th and 20th centuries, liberal scholars calling themselves Christians, saying that they still wanted to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ even, but they began to look at the Bible and suggest that much of the Bible, if not most of the Bible, could put in this category of myth. That was a good way to describe the stories we tell as children in Sunday school, but we also study as adults the point that they were making is that the facts about the stories about their actually happening were not the really the important thing. The important thing about the Bible when you go to it is find those larger deeper truths. That's what you need to focus on. So the point of the Bible is not about actual historical claims. That's not what matters. It's the larger story. So for instance the story of Jonah. Of course that's probably not real events there probably wasn't a man named Jonah who certainly wasn't swallowed by a great fish and got spit out that's the point is that God can rescue us and if you're in a deep dark awful place there's hope for you our Jesus well he may not have actually walked on water the point is that uh, he'll do anything to come to us and to, and to help us and the resurrection Uh, That's not get caught up on whether it's so literal and real historical events, but it does prove that God can bring victory from, from defeat, and there's always hope in your situation. And that's the way many people understood the Bible, and many still do. And there are countless thousands of pastors who stood in pulpits who exactly think of the Bible that way. What's been frustrating are those pastors who believe that way, but they never quite tell their people who don't really believe in the virgin birth, they they, they don't have that idea, but but uh, we, I don't need to push that point, let people think what they want to think, but I don't believe in the virgin birth. I've heard conversations with some of those guys, and uh, you ask them about it, you say, well, the point of the story, that's what matters, is that God can do anything. And to which you can say, yes, that's exactly the point, God can do e- anything, including causing a virgin to be pregnant with a son who is the son of God. Now, my point to you this morning is this, However you want to think about it, whatever those liberal folks, want, how they want to interpret the Bible, they cannot be honest with the text they read and think that the Bible presents itself that way, that the Bible opens itself up as just some storybook with some nice stories. Myth in the Bible is the opposite of truth, and Christianity from its very beginning is tied itself to history. Luke, when he wrote his gospel, wanted his people to know that he had researched those events and he tied them to real historical people and events of his day. John wanted to know, he wanted his readers to know that the miracles he told about really happened. All four gospel writers certainly want us to know that the tomb was really empty and that the dead body of Jesus really had been put there and he calls on witnesses to tell them about it. As J. Gresham Macon said long ago, the Christian religion is founded upon historical facts. And because it is, there is something in the Christian message which can never possibly change. There is one good thing about facts. They stay put. and That's the message of the New Testament. Now, simply because the biblical writers thought that they were writing real history, meant to write real history, doesn't in and of itself prove that what they were telling really happened. They could have just been incorrect. It's, it, you have to say, well, maybe they wrote this stuff. They thought it happened. But maybe maybe they were just fooled. You can say that. But you cannot say that the apostles, in writing these things, thought they were making up stories. That they thought they were just borrow from this idea and that idea and this religion. And, and let's just... Clearly, that's not what they thought. From start to finish... The writers of the Scripture understood that the message of the cross was in a different category than all the stories of the world. They believed that they were declaring what had actually happened in time and space in verifiable history. Well, maybe they didn't remember it correctly. That's possible. But you think about the stories they told. I think it would be hard to remember whether a dead man had come back to life or not. That's, you'd be pretty clear about that one way or another. You'll remember if you were on a mountain and the rabbi you had followed for years suddenly was transfigured into dazzling light in front of your eyes. You know whether that's true or not. And the odds that three writers or more would tell these same stories from their all the perspective, but they all came to the same bottom line. It's hard to figure out how they all got it so wrong. Now, if you want to come to the Gospels with the Bible with a suspicious heart and and you want to just doubt everything, then you can convince yourself that nothing in the Bible is true. You can buy what you're going to hear everywhere in this culture. But if you will come to the book with, like you would any other ancient historical text, with an open, honest heart, you will find yourself confronted with eyewitness testimonies of people who absolutely were convinced they were telling the truth. And you'll have to take the Bible at least in fairness on its own terms. Peter says this is a story that we did not make up. We didn't tell it because it makes us feel good. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. The story of the gospel is not like that at all. Jesus' story told in the Bible by Peter and others is in the category of historical, verifiable facts. He wasn't giving his impression. He wasn't making up a nice story to make a larger point. He was saying this is what actually happened. Now the second thing we see this morning in these words from Peter is that the part of the gospel story that's being attacked is false, and we're going to discover there's a part of the gospel story that clearly is being called false by other people that the part they're calling false fact false is actually in fact very true. At the bottom line of that, the point that he's saying is very true is Jesus is coming again. Notice again verse sixteen, we made known to you we may known to you the power and the coming of our Lord. Jesus Christ, and that's going to be his focus. Earlier, remember, he said, we have great and precious promises of the gospel. They are many, but certainly one of the greatest of those most precious and wonderful promises is that there's a Savior, the same one who died on a cross and rose. Who is coming back for a second time, a final time. History does not go in circles, it has an ending point when everything is dispossessed, everything is settled, and eternity is is, is begun and continued forever. This was always a central part of the gospel message. Peter had been preaching this from the very beginning of the church. In Acts chapter three, in the earliest days of the Christian life together, speaking in the temple, people called us hearers. In Acts three: Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. For times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. He's going to send Him from heaven, and He must be re- and He must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His prophets long ago. Peter would later open the gospel to the, to the whole world, to the Gentiles. Paul would carry that furthest. But Peter's the one who the Lord practically forced to make it happen by going to that Roman centurion, Cornelius. And there in Cornelius' house, Peter would say this about Jesus. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one, Jesus is the one, appointed by God to, to be the judge of the living and the dead. He's coming back, and there's going to be that day. But Peter knows now the church is much further along. There are false teachers, prophets pretending to be Christians, but they would deny this. So you go ahead in the letter, go to chapter 2, verse 1. He says, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. bringing it upon themselves, swift, swift destruction. Verse 2 of chapter 3. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing... This, first of all, that scoffers are going to come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Jesus is coming back. Where is he? We've been, we've been waiting decades now. Peter reminds them of this vital part of the gospel message that the false teachers are trying to deny. Peter says in verse 10 of chapter 3, the day of the Lord will come. It's going to come like a thief. He's quoting Jesus at that point. You understand the point? If somebody's going to rob your house tomorrow, don't expect the text today telling you, I'll be by tomorrow to steal you blind. When Jesus comes, there won't be any warning. It'll be a total surprise, a total shock. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That's what he was talking about in those first 11 verses. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, these people weren't just denying a central Christian truth that Jesus is coming back. But on the basis of denying it, they were saying that gives us all kind of liberty, a freedom to live in a way very much contrary to the gospel message. Back in 2 Peter 2, 2, he says, many will follow their sensuality. They're going to teach others this. And because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. They're going to mock at the idea that there's a coming day when you're going to give an account to Jesus, when when the day of the Lord is actually going to come. The clear idea is that they will reject this, that that you don't have to live like, like Christians ought to live because there's really no accountability. Do what you want to do. So all those words earlier we studied, back in the first part of this chapter, escape from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire, he says these people are actually following their own sinful desires. Undoubtedly, they were suggesting that Christians should. And he says many are going to follow their sensuality. After 2, verse 19, they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Oh, we're not denying Jesus. We're not saying you shouldn't be spiritual. We're just saying you can be spiritual and love Jesus. You don't have to put up with all that riffraff that goes with being a Christian. All that church stuff and, you know, actually like there's rules and morality you have to live by. You can do what you want to do. Make it up as you go. You can be spiritual without being godly. You don't, don't worry about being virtuous. Don't worry about self-discipline. Don't worry about sacrificing, giving your life away for others. You can have a relationship with God. And you don't have to mess with all these rules. And especially, you don't have to mess with all these rules about sex. Why are you people so hung up about sex, you Christians? This whole life after death judgment thing is nothing but an effort to get people to fall in line about sex. It's just that middle class ethics they said, Peter and your words and the other apostles, they're talking about the day of the Lord when you're going to actually give an account for your life. That's just nonsense. You don't have to worry about that. Oh, of course, everybody's got to worry about consequences. You don't want to turn into a drug addict, and you can make some messes there, and they'll, they'll be a problem for your life. But but you don't have to look at it in terms of some final judgment to worry about. I mean, come on, people, what are we? A bunch of fire and brimstone types? And I think of the things that Christians, all Christians believe. The central Christian truths. The most countercultural one is this. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's many who would say, well, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that He was the Son of God. We believe that He was incarnated, became a man, lived even a perfect life. Some might say, well, He even died on a cross. And some would even say He was resurrected, whatever that means. But the part that, that really cuts to the quick of this culture we live in that is not tolerable is we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he will come to judge the living and the dead. But that's a central part of the gospel, and it cannot be set aside. Our culture says do what feels good in the moment. Don't buy this nonsense from Peter and others that you're going to have to answer. Join us. Have a laugh. When they start talking about a day of judgment and accountability, that you really have to think through your life in those kind of terms, just, just give a good chuckle. People are born, they live, they die, wash, repeat, circle of life, you know, on and on it goes. Do what you want, when you want, with who you want, any way you want. It doesn't matter. You read the rest of chapter 2 in, here in 2 Peter and the, the focus is on these false teachers and the way they are attacking these biblical ethics that Peter knows are critical to the people of God, particularly the sexual ethics. Ethics that without them a society can't flourish. Societies that are prosperous and blessed Generations to come are never built on this. But the false teachers don't buy it. You can follow Jesus and enjoy whatever you think is delightful and pleasant to you in any single moment. Just do it. So he talks about in chapter 2, verse 18, They make loud boast of folly. They entice by the sensual passions of the flesh. Verse 14, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Verse 13, They count it pleasure to revel even in the daytime. They, they don't hide it. It's just out in the open. They reduce human beings to live just like animals live. Creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Blast them about matters which they are ignorant, verse 12. They are those who indulge in the flesh a defiling passion and despise authority. So they would say, don't let Peter mess up your day by talking to you about that when Jesus is coming back. That there's a day of accountability, that you're going to stand before them. Don't you worry your little head about that. Just set that aside. Now Peter, of course, strongly disagrees with that. And he gives a reason for it. He is certain Jesus is coming back. He is certain because of something he has seen. He has seen something that tells him Jesus is coming back. Verse 16, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Next Sunday morning, we will observe, as we do once a month, the Lord's Supper. We do that because it is a way of remembering What Jesus did for us, how he went, died on a cross, was resurrected, and in that event brought us salvation. And it's important for us to remember that. Now, the Lord's Supper, the observance of it, is described in the Bible. It was already taking place long before the first pages of the New Testament were written. The early followers of Jesus all observed the Lord's Supper, and we continue to do so, but we do so. And, it would have been and part of it established, if you were saying, this is what we do it for, that, that there was this man Jesus, he came, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, was buried, and resurrected. If, in fact, everyone knew, no, that didn't really happen. It, could, it, would have just, it, couldn't, it couldn't exist. It couldn't have started. It wouldn't have been the same as the Passover in the Old Testament. For tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Hebrew people, slaved to Egyptians, God intervened in the tenth and final plague. The firstborn of all of Egypt died, but not at the home of these Hebrews. They took a little lamb, the Passover lamb. They, they killed it. They smeared its blood on the threshold. They ate the meal, and the death angel passed over, and Pharaoh gave up, and they were set free. And they began to observe this commemorative annual meal long before Moses wrote it down and gave it into the Scriptures. They were already doing it because they knew it was real. They had never done it. It would never continue. It couldn't have even gotten started if it was not based on something real. Not very much aware people will celebrate all kinds of holidays and observances and customs over stuff they know is silly, nonsense, no truth at all. I'm thinking of Cupid and bunnies and old Jolly Saint Nick and Reindeer and they'll they'll buy into that. But the moment you say we're gonna do this because those things are real, They're, you know. <laughs> It would be like Americans celebrating Independence Day on July 4th, but there was never really actually an event back there where somebody put their lives on the line to defend our liberty and to buy our liberty and and to make this nation. We wouldn't make a big deal of that if we thought it was just some... We are people based and rooted in real history that's really happened. Now, Peter says, I know there's some things that are absolutely real, and I know it because I saw them. And there's one thing in particular that I saw, and it's surprising to me... But Peter points out that he saw. Now you think of Peter. He was the high witness to the entirety of Jesus' life and ministry practically. He saw miracle after miracle. There was never a sick person. There was never a demon. There was never a disease that could withstand the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter saw little boys' lunches turned into food for thousands upon thousands. He experienced storms stopped like that with a word. He'd seen storms come and go on the Sea of Galilee, but he had never seen one like that when you speak a word and suddenly no wind, no waves. It's that's creator stuff. That's not weatherman stuff. And then later he saw this same Savior in another storm, maybe not as fierce, but he saw him walking on those waves, and he got out and tried it and actually did it for a bit. Peter knew what it was to pull out a sword and cut off a guy's ear and watch his Savior reach down, pick up the man's ear, stick it on the side of his head, and the man was healed. Peter had seen Jesus, had ate meals with him, had conversations with him, met with him in a sealed room. After he knew Jesus had died and been buried, he'd seen the empty tomb himself, and he'd met that Savior. And then he'd watched him ascend into heaven. And yet, for all those things that Peter saw, And he was eyewitnesses to every bit of that. When he comes to deal with this falsehood here in this church among these believers, he doesn't focus on any of those things I just mentioned. He says, there's something else I saw that convinces me Jesus is coming back. And it's the transfiguration. What we call the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he describes it, verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son. He's not talking about the baptism. This happened at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we ourselves, not just me, there were others with me. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. And my question to you this morning is, why is it this event that Peter says, that's what proves to me Jesus is coming back? It only lasted part of a night, part of a day. Why is it so relevant to the false teaching that Peter is correcting? He says, believe me, I'm an eyewitness. I'm an ear witness. I have no doubt whatsoever that there's a day of the Lord when Jesus is going to come back. I know it because of what I saw at that night on the Mount of Transfiguration. The story, as you know, is recorded in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's also recorded more briefly here in Second Peter. We just read Peter's account of it as well. It's more condensed than the others, but clearly he's referring to the same event. Now, if you read it in all three accounts, there's, there's something very troubling, at least, at least when I was younger, was very troubling to me before you get to the story because just before the story is told, in Mark's account, Luke's account, Matthew's account, there's two verses. And and those verses are what really cause me problems. Now I'm going to read Mark's account because we think Mark probably was most his best resource was probably Peter in terms of how he put the gospel together. But they they all do the same thing. But The the description of Jesus' transfiguration is Mark chapter 9, verse 2. But you go two verses before, and you read these, at least for me, for a long time, very troubling, difficult to figure out words. Back at the end of chapter 8, verse 38, it says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. And there it is, when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Thinking about that second return. Then Jesus says, and here's the troubling, here's the one that, that bugged me for so long. I was about 18, 19 years old. I'd started preaching. I was getting serious about the Bible. I was reading it for myself. But then I read verse nine, verse, chapter 9, verse 1, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some who are standing here who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There's some people standing. Jesus is talking to his disciples, to his apostles. Some of you are standing right here and you're not going to die, you're not going to taste death until the kingdom of God has come in its power. And that's the verse I couldn't figure out. And, and Matthew does the same thing, Luke does the same thing. And in my mind, what what's Jesus saying? He's saying that, that you guys right here are going to be around when my kingdom comes, when the day of the Lord comes, when Jesus comes back the second time. And if that's what Jesus meant, oops, I don't think Peter's still around. I don't think any other disciples that were there that day are still around. What was he talking about? Well, it could be argued, it really has been argued, that I was confusing the kingdom coming in power making it synonymous with Jesus' return. And so it would be argued that the apostles, certainly most of them that were there that day when Jesus said those words, saw the kingdom of God come in power. They saw Jesus is resurrected. They saw his ascension. And they were there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell in power. They saw those amazing signs and wonders that continued for a long time in the life of the church as the church was born and, and against all odds began to explode around the world. And now even here's Peter in 65, 70 A.D. And he sees that the gospel has, has turned the world upside down. It's gone all the way to, to even Rome where we think he is at when he writes his letter. The capital of the empire is being shaken by it. the kingdom has come in power. And that, that very well might be a right understanding of those verses. And we ought to say that the kingdom is still coming in power. Every saved person here today has a testimony of the power of that kingdom, changing and transforming our hearts, making us different people. And I would tell you today, no matter where you are, how dark, how hopeless, how messed up your situation is, The power of the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll turn everything around. He'll show his power in your life if you'll trust him and follow you. And yet, for having said all that, I cannot help but notice all the gospel accounts where Jesus made this promise, and here in Peter's letter, they go right to the transfiguration of Jesus, as I think the illustration of what he means the kingdom comes in power. So in verse 16 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, we may known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He brings up this issue, and then what does he say? He talks right immediately about the transfiguration, and he says, I'm an eyewitness of it. You remember at that transfiguration, there were really only three witnesses, besides the two that showed up from heaven. Peter, James, and John, which is not unusual, that happens in the Gospels. Peter, James, and John are the only three invited in. For instance, when they go to Jairus' house, his little daughter has died. Everybody else stays out but Jesus and those three apostles, and they get to see Jesus speak those words to that dead little girl. They watch her rise to life. Later, it was only Peter, James, and John who are allowed to go to be with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can imagine why Jesus, with the agony and the suffering of that moment, didn't need a big crowd around. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember, of course, famously, Peter, James, and John have a problem. You know, this, this apostle stuff is exhausting, and they can't stay awake to pray. Well, at the Mount of Transfiguration, it's the same three guys, again on a mountain. Again, Jesus is praying, and they have the same problem. They fall asleep. The one who rats them out about this is, by the way, in Luke. It's the only one of the accounts that tell us this. But Luke says, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and two men stood standing next to him. Going back to Mark's account, he, what he saw was this. He says, and his clothes, that is, Jesus' clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let's make three tents, each one, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. That was stupid. It was, Peter, you've done it again. And he just woke up. You understand. You see this. You'd never expect to see. Couldn't imagine. You wake up and you see this. And, and when Peter doesn't know what to say, he says something. Like some of us. He didn't know what he was saying. I know that. Verse 6 says it. He did not know what to say. And they were terrified. Of course they were. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. God's voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Probably why he limited it to the three. Now, there's lots to understand about that moment, lot of truth to be drawn from it. I simply want to focus on Peter's point in his letter. Back to verse 16, chapter 1. When we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over in the New Testament, when it talks about Jesus coming back, it associates the word power with that coming back. When Jesus returns, no one will miss it. And no one will go on, oh, isn't that interesting? Oh, he did come back. And no one will resist him. Notice the second word is the word coming. It becomes almost a technical word in the scriptures. It's the word parousia. It's reserved always for a description of Jesus' second coming. That is, this word coming is never used to describe when Jesus was conceived of the Virgin Mary, or his birth in a manger, or when God became flesh. It is always a word that describes his coming back at the end of history. The Greeks used the word to describe an important official coming to a city. 17 times in the New Testament, it is used to describe Jesus' return. Everything that Peter says about that reminds him of what he saw on that mountain that night at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, things he saw and heard. Because, you see, on that mountain on that night, you might say that Peter saw the future. He saw what it's going to look like when the skies were split and when everyone on the earth see the Lord Jesus and his return. But, of course, he was seeing more than that. He was seeing past, present, and future. The truth is, Jesus was always glorious. He is the eternal Son of God. The glory and the radiance and the the magnificence that that couldn't even be conceived hardly by human minds. That's who Jesus always was. The great miracles that in His incarnation is somehow that was covered. It is shielded. What Peter was seeing was the truth about Jesus even in that moment. He, He saw the whole picture there. It's what He'd always been in the past. It's what He was even then. But it was covered by His humanity. And it's certainly what we're going to see when He returns. So this event of the transformation, this Appearance he saw that night showed the truth about Jesus, the truth that's going to become evident when He comes back at the end. He says, "We were eyewitnesses of His Majesty. I know what I'm talking about. I saw it, I heard it." Wouldn't it be surprising to Peter that when the One comes back, who he saw on that mountain that he has no doubt what will happen. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He says in verse 18, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. It happened. And that alone should motivate us to make every effort to live by the divine power of Christ that provides everything we need for life and godliness now. Chapter 3, verse 11, he says, Since all these things talking about Christ's return, the, the judgment of the earth. Since all these things thus to be dissolved. The question now is what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? There are many motivations for living and serving Jesus and seeking to live the life he calls us to live. But one of them is that he's coming back, and we're going to give an account, and we ought to be ready. We ought to be able to be in readiness when he comes. That was a part of his teaching from the beginning. It's not a peripheral doctrine tacked on the end. It's not some made-up story to motivate people. It's simply the reality, and it ought to affect everything we do. One of the marks of the living faith of Jesus Christ is we who follow him earnestly, joyously look forward to the personal, visible return of the God-man, Jesus, our Savior. The second coming is at the heart of our faith, is at the heart of our confidence, It's the thing that changes how we see everything, even when it looks like the world's going to hell in a handbasket. We remember what stands at the end, an end that may be closer than many people can imagine. It's not a result of our clever little games, a nice little story. Peter says, I saw something in history that tells me when Jesus told us he was coming back, you can count on it. So I finished this morning. Just a few observations. Do you know that Jesus is coming back? Do you know this basic truth? And are you convinced of it? Remember how knowledge has been a key all the way through this passage. We've looked at it over and over. Verse 2 Grace and peace shall be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. Verse 3 His divine power has been given to you through knowledge. Make every effort, verse 5, to add to your virtue knowledge. Verse 8 If these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective, unfruitful in the knowledge. You need knowledge. By the way, full blooded Christian faith always flourishes with knowledge, it does not flourish with ignorance. Sex, falsehoods flourish in ignorance. They can't be examined very closely. There are two things that have always fallen in the wake of where Christ and the gospel are, are becoming preeminent in a culture. Hospitals and schools. Christians believe in education. We believe in knowledge. We believe in truth. And our life and our faith is grounded in reliable historical realities, not myths. And so I ask you today, what myths are filling your life? Because you're hearing them all the time. You pay money to subscribe to all kinds of stuff that comes into your home, and you watch very well toward stories. The technology behind them, the, the, the storytelling. I, I remember those old 30-minute programs we used to watch as a kid on TV. <laughs> those stories are pretty shallow, and, you know, they're, they were safe, but they were really not great stories. But we're being flooded with really great storytellers. I'm just asking you what's behind those stories. And you may say, oh, I know they're just a story. It's just a movie. It's just that. My friends, those stories, if you're not careful, are seeping into your very way you're thinking about everything in life and seeping into your kids, how they think of life. You better pay attention to your stories, the ones you're reading, the ones you're watching, the games you're playing, because they have stories built in too, don't they? It matters. And then secondly, when you think about Jesus coming back, if he was to come back, tomorrow if if I could tell you today by the way 10 o'clock tomorrow Jesus is coming back and you could believe what I told you how would you how would you honestly respond to that would that be the deepest most exciting joyous news you ever heard or would it be the greatest fear of calamity that would strike you say oh my oh my how you respond to that will tell a great deal about your real walk with Jesus right now and my dear friend if you're here apart from Christ It will be a calamity of calamities. You can't begin to imagine. I don't have words to describe it the New Testament uses some awful words, but even they won't get it. But there's a God of grace, and now Peter's gonna talk about why the Lord delays. It's not that he's slow, he's not like oh he's forgotten. It's his mercy and his grace. He's giving you a chance, he's giving you time. But now's the day to turn and trust him and follow him. And those who are his ought to live with that readiness. I don't have to figure out all the details of His coming. I just have to be ready. Let's stand. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the challenge. This Word of the Gospel is true. And we thank You for the eyewitness statement of Peter, as well as so many others. We thank You for what he saw on that mountain. That picture of Your glory. And one day, we're all going to see that. And may we live lives that are ready and anxious ready to, to worship you more fully and completely and, and knowing we're seeking now to live lives transformed by you, surrendered to you, living sacrifices every day so that we might know all the joy and fullness that are going to come when we enter into your kingdom and its fullness. Oh, Father, call those in this room, those listening to my voice right now who don't know Jesus, who have not taken of his grace. They know about it. They've heard it maybe. They've played with it. They've thought about they to do something about it. Oh, Father, shake them and stir them to come to Christ now to turn to Him, to cry out and ask you to save them. Do that in them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.